Blog Talk Radio. Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday evening. It is March 11th, 2022. And as always, it's a pleasure to join you. I thank you for tuning in. Boy, oh boy, we have so much ground to cover, so many issues to talk about. Uh, The obvious one, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, of course, is the continuing Russian invasion of Ukraine. But what I've been noticing, and I'm sure you've been watching this also or not watching, is coverage of other events that have an immediate and direct impact on America and Americans. The invasion by Russia is is a train wreck. It's kind of like driving by an accident where there's dead bodies lying in the road. You don't want to look, but somehow you can't avoid looking. And the media knows this. The media is all about revenue, ratings, advertising. When the media complains, by the way, that increasing wages for menial American workers is inflationary, why doesn't anyone raise the issue of how much money uh, we spend when we buy products that have the advertising costs baked into them? I, I just find it remarkable that in America... No one seems to look at anything from anyone else's position but for their own. Uh, I wrote an article about two weeks ago for Front Page Magazine. I hope you've all read it. If you haven't, please go back, check it out again, or check it out for the first time. But the the point to my article was rather than critical race theory, we need to be teaching critical thinking theory uh, to our kids uh, and to ourselves. I was also going to give it another title, but it didn't happen. I probably should write a second article. Uh, that I want to say that we really need to have critical empathy theory in America, critical empathy theory. We have become so self-absorbed, so grammatically challenged, as I like to put it. And what do I mean by grammatically challenged? We tend to conjugate verbs in the first person singular. Um, President Reagan famously said that it's a depression when you're out of work, but only a recession when it's your neighbor who is out of work. And isn't that the case? We really have to understand that as fellow Americans, we should be uniting together to protect our nation, protect each other. We should be rooting for each other. Of course, critical race theory turns all of that on its ear and is designed rather than to arrive at solutions, conflict resolution solutions that are peaceful and rational What critical race theory, of course, is seeking to do is to instigate, um, you know, conflict within our country. Let's have Americans beat each other up. Boy, our enemies would love that, wouldn't they? So instead of saying, let's unite, let's try to help each other, we're all in this together, let's be part of what I like to call Team America. We're at each other's throat, and that's exactly what our enemies want. And unfortunately, I believe some of our enemies are within our own government because 
they can't possibly be looking out for the best interests of America or Americans, even as 100,000 people die because of uh, drug overdoses every year, even as criminals are turned loose onto the streets and kill more people and injure more people in the name of criminal justice reform and bail reform. That's not a solution. People are dying. Uh, I wrote an article a while back, and if, if you're upset with the police, and not every cop does the right thing, sometimes you have bad police officers, there are bad teachers, bad shoe salesmen, bad doctors, bad lawyers, bad accountants. Every profession has the good, the bad, and the ugly. So when a cop does the wrong thing, that police officer or that federal agent is made accountable, as well he or she should. I have no problem with that. Sometimes a police officer or a federal agent, law enforcement officers, uh, are put into a precarious position because if they screw up, uh, they may die, their partner, innocent people may die or become seriously injured. Uh, it, it's, it's a tough deal. They talk about the fog of battle, the fog of war. Make no mistake, that happens out on the street when you're trying to make arrests. I know I've made many, many, many arrests, <clears throat> and when someone resists, the concern is always that the bad guy may gain control of your weapon and use it against you, your partner, or somebody else. So it's very easy to sit in judgment of a law enforcement officer who had a fraction of a second to make a life or death decision um, and then say, well, look what happened. Look what happened. And so our enemies understand that they can play on that to tear us apart, disinformation. By the way, to, to use an analogy I've used in the past, the solution to mistakes by police or improper actions by police is not to defund the police. Maybe it's to spend more money on the police to, number one, hire more qualified candidates, you know, and number two, put the money <clears throat> into training, put the money into resources. Maybe we could come up with more non-lethal means of quickly subduing an individual who's resisting arrest. Uh, by the way, the issue of resisting arrest, I'm sure I've spoken on it. I believe I've spoken on it on my program. I've, I've been doing so many interviews lately that they all kind of blur. It's kind of like being on a merry-go-round going at warp speed, and, and you forget what you were looking at two seconds ago as the merry-go-round go whipping, whipping around in, in, in a turn. But if, if you really want to consider uh, what the crazy left is doing and saying bail reform and and then decriminalizing resisting arrest, that's the perfect storm. Most people who wind up dying during encounters with law enforcement are resisting arrest at the time that the tragedy takes place. Make no mistake, it's a tragedy. People don't want to lose their lives, and we, should, we don't want people losing their lives, and law enforcement officers aren't out there as a hit squad. Your job is to bring the individual in to face justice. You're not the judge, jury, and, and executioner. <clears throat> but if somebody resists arrest, things can very rapidly spiral out of control, and we've seen it numerous times. So by making resisting arrest a non-issue, you're encouraging more people to resist arrest. I have to believe, folks that the people that want to decriminalize resisting arrest want to see more tragedies on the street so that they can capitalize on them. They want carnage. You would think <clears throat> that if you look at the commonality, the common ground, 
says in almost every case, the individual who's either wounded or killed by police during an encounter with law enforcement was resisting arrest, you would want to discourage people from resisting arrest and that those situations are less likely to occur, wouldn't you? But what, have the other, what has the other side done? Let's decriminalize resisting arrest. So if you resist arrest and you get away with it, no harm, no foul, everything's right. No, everything is wrong. Because the more that people are emboldened to resist arrest, the greater the likelihood that more people will wind up getting shot, killed, wounded, because they will have been encouraged to resist arrest to get away from police or get away from federal agents. We're living in one hell of an era where up is down, down is up, left is right, right is left, and lies are the truth. And, you know, George Orwell said that in a time of uh, tyranny, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. We have got to use some critical thinking and say, okay, why in the world would anybody want to decriminalize resisting arrest? Well, I can only come to one conclusion. Whoever is behind that wants to see more tragedies on the street that they can exploit for political objectives. Think about what the Democrats said about never letting a crisis go to waste. This is how you create a crisis. This is how you create a crisis. And, and so this brings us to where we are today with the Biden administration, with its lack of leadership, and what I believe is rampant corruption. Uh, we're going to buy more petroleum from Iran, even as Iran is racing to create weapons-grade uh, material so they can create bombs. And they've already made it clear. They want to wipe America, and they want to wipe our close ally, Israel, off of the map. I, I mean, what more could they say to you? They're not joking when they're out there chanting death to America and burning American flags. Take them at their word. They're telling you what their plans are, okay? Does it get any clearer? Death to America, right? Let's destroy America. Let's wipe America off the face of the earth. Let's get rid of Israel. And what are we doing to prevent them from getting nuclear weapons? And now we're buying more petroleum from them because we have a petroleum issue with Russia, and the money is being used by Iran, I can promise you, either to further its weapons program, whether it's nuclear materials, whether it's ballistic missiles, they're developing those as well, so they could reach out and touch us across our continent with nuclear weapons that they're racing to construct. This is insanity. This is nuts. This is like taking gang members and bringing them to the pistol range and saying, you know what? Let's teach MS-13 gang members how to shoot more accurately so maybe they'll be less likely to hit an innocent bystander if they're involved in a bank robbery or a shootout. Are you crazy? Is anybody paying attention? And if you look at Iran, there was an interesting article in the Daily News. This was November 18, 2021, a couple of months ago. Here's the headline. Iranian hackers posing as proud boys tried to disrupt the 2020 election colon, the feds, okay? Let me begin reading this. A pair of Iranian hackers ran a sophisticated online campaign aimed at interfering with last year's presidential election by threatening and influencing American voters, federal officials said on Thursday. As a part of their campaign, the conspirators got confidential U.S. voter information from at least one state election website and sent threatening email messages to intimidate people before they cast their ballots, prosecutors said. 
<clears throat> the disinformation duo also created a video that detailed false voting vulnerabilities and even gained unauthorized access to U.S. media companies' computer network, but were stopped before they could do any further damage to it, authorities said. Sayyid Mohammed Hussein Musa Kazimi, 24, and Sajjad Kashian, 27, were both charged with conspiracy, voter intimidation, and transmission of interstate threats. Kazimi was also charged with unauthorized computer intrusion, computer fraud, and knowingly damaging a protected computer. The accused hackers were equal opportunity disruptors, according to the indictment. Hackers targeted Republicans with messages claiming voter fraud and Democrats with false flag threats from the Proud Boys. The fake Proud Boys sent Facebook messages and emails <clears throat> pardon me, to Republican senators and members of the House, individuals associated with former President Donald Trump's campaign, White House advisors and members of the media, and it goes on. I assure you that they were not acting independently, okay? This is who we're buying oil from, but it gets even worse than that. Um, there have been hearings held. There have been hearings held. Let me just pull this up for you. Because it's absolutely incredible. Um, okay. There were some hearings held in 2018, and I know I've referenced these hearings uh, on prior programs here and elsewhere. And again, I'm talking about this because we are buying oil from Iran and Venezuela. Venezuela is working hand in glove with Iran. So on April 17, 2018, Front page published my article, Congressional Hearing Iranian Sleeper Cells Threaten the U.S. The House Counterterrorism Intelligence Subcommittee held a hearing on the topic, the state sponsors of terrorism and examination of Iran's global terrorism network. I don't know why nobody's going on TV and talking about that hearing. It was an open hearing. The witnesses were all in agreement. Sometimes when you testify at a hearing, and I've done many hearings, other witnesses can disagree. They could say, no, Mr. Cutler, you're getting it wrong, and we have a back and forth, and that's fine. <clears throat> Everybody was in agreement. When a witness, Dr. Emmanuel Ortolenge of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, testified, let me just read two paragraphs from his testimony. When I read this to you, I want you to remember that the Biden administration is buying petroleum from this Iranian government. Here we go. This is... Dr. Orlenge's testimony, a portion of it. In recent years, Hezbollah's Latin American networks have also increasingly cooperated with violent drug cartels and criminal syndicates, often with the assistance of local corrupt political elites. Let me remind you, Hezbollah is a terrorist organization. It started in Lebanon, but it is funded and directed by the Iranian government. And here we're talking about Hezbollah operating in Latin America. You always think Hezbollah Middle East while well, they're operating in Latin America. So let me go back and reread that sentence and, and complete reading the uh, witness's testimony. In recent years, Hezbollah's Latin American networks have also increasingly cooperated with violent drug cartels and criminal syndicates, often with the assistance of local corrupt political elites. Cooperation includes laundering of drug money, arranging multi-ton shipments of cocaine to the United States and Europe, and directly distributing and selling illicit substances to distant markets. Proceeds from these activities finance Hezbollah's arms procurement, its terror activities overseas, its hold on Lebanon's political system, 
and its efforts both in Lebanon and overseas to keep Shia's communities loyal to its cause and complicit in its endeavors. But now the second paragraph is the kind of thing that, to be honest with you, keeps me awake at night staring up at my ceiling in the darkness. Listen carefully. This toxic crime terror nexus that is Hezbollah and the drug cartels, right, and human traffickers, this toxic crime terror nexus is fueling both the rising threat of global jihadism and the collapse of law and order across Latin America that is helping to drive drugs and people northward into the United States. Think of those caravans that Biden is encouraging and doing nothing to stop, okay? To drive drugs and people northward into the United States. It is sustaining Hezbollah's growing financial needs, and it is helping Iran and Hezbollah consolidate a local constituency in multiple countries across Latin America. Latin America. It is thus facilitating their efforts to build safe havens for terrorists and a continent-wide terror infrastructure that they could use to strike U.S. targets. This is who we're selling petroleum, but we're buying petroleum from, giving them our dollars that I guarantee you are in part flowing into Hezbollah and Iran's nuclear program, the programs that they want to use to destroy the United States and kill lots of Americans. Let that sink in. Why is nobody on television talking about that nexus between Iran, Hezbollah, Latin America, human traffickers, and the drug trade flowing into the United States? What the hell are we doing? Why would you give money to your enemies? They are our enemies. They are at war with us. Make no mistake. When you say death to America, death to Israel, they're out there burning our flags, and we're buying petroleum from them. I want someone to explain this to me, because i got to tell you, I have a secret for you. I'm not smart enough to figure this one out. I thought I was pretty smart, but I can't figure this one out, because the logic behind this escapes me. Hezbollah is working throughout Latin America to flood America with deadly narcotics and people, including sleeper agents. And what are we doing to defend ourselves? Buying their oil. We're doing the same thing with Venezuela. Venezuela working hand in glove with the Quds forces, the Iranian shock troops, because they've been going directly from Tehran into Venezuela for at least the last decade or two. So Venezuela is getting our money and Iran is getting our money, even as they chant death to America and they're working on nuclear weapons. Somebody explain this to me because I have no comprehension of what the hell is going on. This is beyond anything I can begin to comprehend or explain to anybody in any rational way because it makes no damn bloody sense. And then you have Joe Biden saying everything is Putin's fault. Pretty soon, they're going to blame climate change on Putin also. It's outrageous because the politicians, the crooks, people like Biden, who's a con man, pure and simple, look at his son, Hunter. Hunter wasn't an accident. Hunter is the product of Joe Biden. Apples and trees. I rest my case. He just lies so convincingly and so glibly as he stumbles through words and sounds like a drunk 
certainly he's not he's no longer the sharpest knife in the drawer, not that he ever was. But my goodness, Putin is responsible for inflation. Putin is responsible for the oil shortage. Putin, 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 Putin. The dog ate my homework. I guess Putin ate his homework also. It's beyond belief. It's beyond belief. And Iran in the past has said that if you do anything to interfere with our nuclear program, we won't be able to stop the drugs from flowing into your country, as though they're trying to prevent the drugs from coming into America. I mean, it's mind-boggling. And we know where Russia stands on all these issues, don't we? Everybody has been comparing, or many people have been comparing the Ukraine President Zelensky with Sir Winston Churchill. It's amazing how sometimes people do rise to the occasion. Uh, Harry Truman owned a clothing store. He became a vice president. Everyone thought he was kind of inconsequential until Franklin Delano Roosevelt died, and suddenly Harry Truman was thrust into the Oval Office. He wasn't even aware of the Manhattan Project. And according to reports I read when uh, Albert Einstein approached him and said to him, Mr. President, um, I had a deal with President Roosevelt that we wouldn't use the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki or any populated areas. I would rather you use it on an unpopulated area. Truman decisively said, uh, I'm sorry, um, Professor, you had a deal with Franklin Roosevelt. He's dead. I'm the president, and we're not going to do that. And uh, Truman had to do a real quick uh, catch-up game because from what I had read, he wasn't even aware of the Manhattan Project until after he was sworn in as president. It was that secret in operation. And he rose to the occasion. He rose to the occasion. And I think he did a, a damn good job as a president. Um, so now we're going to talk about Winston Churchill. Uh, the History Channel did an interesting report. And this was about Churchill delivering the Iron Curtain speech. I want to read this to you, because if we're going to talk about Zelensky and we're going to talk about Churchill, let's give um, former Prime Minister Churchill uh, a little bit of airtime, if you will. So here's a quote from the History Channel. This is an objective report that doesn't have any leanings one way or the other. In one of the most famous orations of the Cold War period, former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill condemns the Soviet Union's policies in Europe and declares, quote, from Stettin to the Baltic to Trieste and the, and the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Churchill's speech is considered one of the opening volleys announcing the beginning of the Cold War. Churchill, who had been defeated for re-election as prime minister in 1945, was invited to Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, where he gave this speech. President Harry Truman joined Churchill on the platform and listened intently to his speech. Churchill began by praising the United States, which he declared stood, quote, at the pinnacle of world power. It soon became clear that a primary purpose of his talk was to argue for an even closer special relationship, in quotes, special relationship, between the United States and Great Britain, the great powers of the English-speaking world, in organizing and policing the post-war world. In particular, he, meaning Truman, warned against the expansionistic policies of the Soviet Union. Boy, the more things change, the more they stay the same, would you say? The expansionistic policies of the Soviet Union. In addition to the Iron Curtain that had, been, that had descended across Eastern Europe, Churchill spoke of, quote, communist fifth columns, unquote, that were operating throughout Western and Southern Europe, 
drawing parallels with the disastrous appeasement of Hitler prior to World War II. Churchill advised that in dealing with the Soviets, there was, quote, nothing which they admire so much as strength, and there is nothing for which they have less respect than for military weakness. Military weakness. Someone should knock on the door of the Oval Office and rouse Joe from his slumber and, and read that to him. And the article goes on and says Truman and many other U.S. officials warmly received the speech. Already there had been decided that the Soviet Union was bent on expansion and only a tough stance would deter Russians. Churchill's Iron Curtain phrase immediately entered the official vocabulary of the Cold War. U.S. officials were less enthusiastic about Churchill's call for a special relationship between the United States and Great Britain. While they viewed British as a valuable ally in the Cold War, they were also well aware that Britain's power was on the wane and had no intentions of being used as pawns to help supporting the crumbling British Empire. And the Soviet Union, Russian leader Joseph Stalin denounced the speech as warmongering and referred to Churchill's comments about English-speaking world as imperialist racism. Here we go, folks, racism. The British, Americans, and Russians, allies against Hitler less than a year before the speech, were drawing the battle lines of the Cold War. Wow. Sounds like something that could be written today, doesn't it? So when you realize what Russia's goals are and what they're willing to do, kill men, women, children, blow up buildings, um, nuclear power, they don't care. They don't care. They're literally hell-bent, hell-bent on reconstituting the old Soviet Union. I, I've always thought that that might be something they'd be interested in doing, <clears throat> and, and so here we are. Here we are. And it, it's truly remarkable that we are in this situation and that this administration is willing to buy petroleum from Iran, willing to buy petroleum from Venezuela, we're continuing to deal with China, of course, because corporations don't give a damn about anything except profit. And we're better than China to go manufacture whatever garbage you're making because, number one, they have slave labor, and number two, there are no environmental restrictions in China. There's no OSHA. There's no EPA. I know a lot of my conservative friends hate regulations, and they just want to make money and not pay taxes. Not all, but some. I get really upset with that. I hate unnecessary or stupid or, or conflicting regulations. But unfortunately, when you look at things like Boeing and the crash of the 737 MAX jet, not once but twice, and how the president of Boeing, who was since removed from uh, his position of leadership in that company, walked out the door, by the way, with a golden parachute of something like $60 million. It blows my mind. <clears throat> And you realize that companies do have to be made accountable. People have to be made accountable. Politicians have to be made accountable. Certainly, no one argues about making police accountable. But what's remarkable to me, and I wrote this article a while back, is that while the, the, the lunatic left wants to defund the police, much as Biden might try to say that never happened, let's rewrite history, folks. Biden's good at that. It goes with the fact that he's a deceitful, uh, less than honest person. Um, in 2018, according to John Hopkins University, over 250,000 people died because of medical malpractice. Let me read that number to you again. I'll not read it, but tell you I don't have material in front of me right now. 
But according to the study done by Johns Hopkins University in 2018, I believe it was, over 250,000 people died of medical malpractice. Another university for the same time period said that the number was more like 440,000, approaching a half million. Any life lost is a tragedy. Let's be super-duper clear. If only one person was killed by police in an inappropriate action, it would certainly be a tragedy to the person, to the family, to the friends, to the system. That's not what our system is about. This isn't Russia. This isn't China. This is America. Okay? But with all those people dying of medical malpractice, I have a simple question. Have you ever seen anybody calling for the defunding of medicine, the defunding of hospitals, the defunding of medical research? Of course not. When people die, the immediate reaction is to try to figure out what went wrong so we can solve the problem and save lives. If police make a mistake, we hold the police accountable. We certainly don't want that to happen. You know, one of the things that always struck me when I went for firearms training, and I had to qualify every 90 days with my firearm if I was to keep my authority to carry a weapon, is that the emphasis was on how quickly could you draw and fire X number rounds at a target at a certain distance. In three seconds, draw and fire two rounds. In five seconds, draw and fire three rounds, whatever. The emphasis was always on drawing and firing. Maybe there should be more emphasis on shoot-don't-shoot decisions. I'm not sure what the training curriculum looks like now. I've been retired for around 20 years. But I remember going to the range, and the emphasis was always on how quickly can you draw and fire X number rounds and reload and fire additional rounds and perhaps reload again as you're on the move, firing at targets that you could knock down so you could immediately see whether or not you hit the target. There's paper targets you have to, you know, go up and look at them. So we had the, 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 we used to call them the poppers, these little metal targets. They were shaped like people. If the bullet hit them, they fell over. So you'd be running across the range, firing and moving and shooting and moving and shooting. But the emphasis always on fire. How many can you fire in this amount of time? So maybe one of the good ideas would be let's put more emphasis on shoot, don't shoot decisions. Just a thought off the top of my head. Maybe when law enforcement officers uh, have a number of years in, we should give them the opportunity to retire early because some people can get burned out. It happens in the military. Lots of people go into the military for, for a three-year, a five-year, an eight-year hitch. Everyone thanks them for their service, and they move on to other endeavors. Maybe we should do the same thing in law enforcement because so many people, I'm sure, stay there. They don't want to lose their pension. So maybe we should be providing reduced pensions to law enforcement officers who want to leave early because they've been traumatized by their experience. They're burned out. It's a tough job. I've been to too many funerals of colleagues who were killed in the line of duty. It affects you. It absolutely affects you. I can tell you that I've met police officers who do suffer post-traumatic stress. We're human beings. We're not robots. So there's got to be ways of addressing the issue. But when you see the nonsense of let's decriminalize resisting arrest and let's turn people loose on the street even when there's a likelihood they're going to commit more violent crime, that's crazy. That's not helping society. It's not even helping the criminal. Because that criminal will ultimately wind up in jail forever if he or she doesn't get killed by law enforcement or by somebody they're robbing. Robbery is a dangerous profession. 
You don't know who you, 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 you're approaching. That person might have a weapon. That person might kill you. This isn't a good career path. Career criminal is not the career that most parents would hope their children aspire to. You know, What do you want to be, Johnny? Well, I want to be a doctor. And, 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 and Bob, what do you want to be? Oh, I'd like to be a school teacher. That's great. And Sam, what do you want to be? I want to be a career criminal. No, I don't think that works. But this is about the destruction of our country by people who hate America. And I really believe that a number of them uh, hold positions within our government. By the way, Yale University offering free law school. I'm planning to write about this to children living in poverty, and I'm all for it. I love scholarships for children who otherwise couldn't go to college because college can be, not always, can be the pathway to success in America. My parents were really clear on that. Um, my parents never went to high school. My mom came here ahead of the Holocaust as a 13-year-old, had a fourth-grade education. I, I've spoken about her frequently. They're my heroes. She became the chief buyer of a dress company during the Depression. That was so successful. She became the chief buyer, and her boss um, was frequently called upon by Roosevelt as a dollar-a-year man to advise the president on how to get the economy moving during the Depression. And her boss frequently pointed to her, only in her 20s with a fourth-grade education is the reason he was so successful, because she was so inherently brilliant. There's a world of difference between being educated and being smart. And my dad was a tradesman. And for me, tradesmen are the backbone of America. They're the backbone of a society. They build the buildings. They, build, they, they, they manufacture the cars and the airplanes. They, they do everything. Without tradesmen, we'd be living under trees in the forest somewhere, okay? Tradesmen are vital to a society, and they are talented, and they're brilliant, and they're amazing, but they just didn't go to college. They learn skills differently, and we need those skills. But my parents are very strong, go to college. So Yale University says, okay, we're going to give you a free law education. And then as you read the motivation, what does the literature say? We want those lawyers to be a force for change in America. The ACLU gave that a term. They called it lawfare. You heard of warfare? This is lawfare. Do what we don't like you to do, and we will send an army of lawyers after you. So Yale University apparently is looking to create that army of lawyers um, for what purpose? Change what? Change how? You know, when Obama was elected, he promised us change. And one of my friends said, well, don't you think change is a good thing? I said, well, it depends what kind of change. And I like analogies, if you're familiar with me and my programs. And so I said, so imagine you're in a lifeboat, you were in an ocean liner, and in the middle of the night, like the Titanic, something happens to the ship, and it's going down, and they get everybody in their PJs and bathrobes into those lifeboats, and now they're bobbing up and down in frigid water. Now imagine you're one of those survivors in a lifeboat, and you say to your friend sitting next to you in the lifeboat, you know, Charlie, this stinks. I am cold. I am hungry. I am seasick. I don't know what in the world we're going to do. I'm really worked up. I wish we weren't suffering like this. And your friend says, you know what? I could change your circumstances. And without thinking, because you're so unhappy, you say, great, change my circumstances. And your good friend Charlie grabs you by the shoulders and heaves you into the frigid shark-infested waters. Well, he certainly would have changed your circumstances, but I don't think you were, would be happy with the change you got. So you've got Yale University offering to, to have lawyers as agents of change in America. 
Does that mean more criminals being turned loose? What does it mean exactly? What change do you want to give America? Why is it that we're always hearing about what needs to be done from the perspective of the law violator? Has that ever dawned on you? Illegal aliens and what their dreams are, they want their share of the American dream. Uh, what about the Americans who lose their jobs to foreign workers? And not just the illegal aliens, but the high-tech workers, something that uh, Alan Greenspan was all about. When he testified for Chuck Schumer back on April 30th, 2009, he said the solution to wage inequality is to make American highly skilled workers. That means workers with advanced degrees compete with foreign workers for their jobs. He said because if you did that, because these American workers are making much, much, much too much money. They're making more money than they should ever earn, and we could do something about that by making them compete with other workers from other countries. And once we get rid of their wage premium, we will have greatly reduced wage inequality between Americans with skills and those with lesser skills. So what does that mean? Let's engineer the destruction of the middle class so the working poor will have nobody to be envious of. So we'll all earn roughly the same amount of money. So when they talk about a $15 an hour minimum wage, and I have to favor a $15 an hour minimum wage, by the way, folks, and some of you may disagree, and that's fine. That's part of what the First Amendment is about. Let's have that debate. So if, if they want the $15 an hour minimum wage, what they really want isn't the minimum wage. They're looking for a standard wage. And if you're making $15 an hour, you're making 30000 a year. And I'll tell you a little secret. In New York City, even before rampant inflation, you couldn't support a dog on $15 an hour, $30,000 a year. That will make everybody dependent on the government. These people are control freaks. They want to run your life, tell you where to go, where to eat, where to sit, how to get where you're going, perhaps take away your car. God knows what they want to take away. They want to be large and they want to be in charge. That's their goal. They are the ultimate quintessential micromanaging control freaks. They need power. This isn't power to the people, folks. This is power from the people. It's not what they want to do for us. It's what they want to do to us. Think about that. So we're always being told what the illegal alien wants. No one ever walks up to an American and says, what would you like? Oh, what you like? Who cares about you? You're an American. You're expendable. We're bringing in people to compete with American workers for their job, which is exactly what Alan Greenspan and all of the radical lunatics who are globalists want, and it's both parties. It's both political parties. I made that point when I was on with Graham Ledger yesterday on his program. I said nobody wanted to fund the border wall, but the border wall wasn't designed to keep anybody out of the country. And I've, I've spoken about it many times, and you need to talk to your neighbors about this. It's going to shock them, I promise you. Because I, I always get that great wide-eyed look, like, are you kidding me? You, know, you say to them, do you know the border wall wasn't designed to stop anybody from entering the United States? Are you crazy? It's supposed to keep Mexicans out. No, it's not what it's for. How could the border wall keep anybody out if it didn't block off the ports of entry? All that the border wall was designed to do was make certain that everybody who wants to come to America and all cargo coming into America would have to go through a vetting process at a port of entry. It's no different from going to the baseball uh, park or the football stadium and having to go through the gates where you buy a ticket, maybe go through a metal detector before you're able to get to your seat in the stands. That's all. 
And the Republicans didn't want that border wall. The Democrats didn't want that border wall. Even after 9-11 Commission equated, and very properly so, border security with national security. It's not designed to keep anybody out of the country. That's the whole damn point. It's just designed to make sure that everybody goes through a vetting process. Who in their right mind would be opposed to a vetting process? Please raise your hand. Explain it to me. Reach out to me and explain to me how it's improper or wrongheaded that we vet people who want to come to America. That's what this is about. That's what the big fight is about. They want people to come here without screening. That means they could have dangerous diseases. They could be criminals. They could be spies. They could be terrorists. They could be here to take the jobs of Americans. We don't care. The only big thing about these folks is they're not Americans because our government does not like Americans. Americans who stood up against critical race theory at school board meetings have been branded domestic terrorists. How dare you stand up for your child? What are you thinking? Meanwhile, when children are raised in a two-parent household where there is stability, the odds of that child growing up successfully, being happy, having a good career, etc., are greatly increased when that child is raised in a two-parent household. When children come from broken families, when they come from chaos, generally they have a much tougher struggle to overcome uh, those difficulties created by their early childhood. You would think that if you're concerned about Americans, that you would want children to grow up in a wholesome, healthy, happy environment. And that means parental involvement. But the Biden administration brands parents who are involved domestic terrorists. I want someone to explain it. Again, my ability to comprehend the logic, if there is any logic, fails me. Absolutely fails me. And the other part of the problem that we have is that this administration and the radical left do not want you to ask any questions. Follow the science. Follow the science. Okay. I spoke about medical malpractice before. So I want you to think about something. When, God forbid, any of us become seriously ill, generally you're encouraged, and your insurance company will pay for it for you to get a second opinion. Well, how does that happen? These are all doctors. They all went to medical school. They all know the science. Why in the world would an insurance company say to you, Mr. Jones or Ms. Smith or whoever you are, you can go to another doctor to get a second opinion before you have that surgery. Science is science, right? Wrong. Think about that. It's common sense and standard practice to get at least one or more, quote, second opinions when dealing with doctors or other issues involving serious matters. Get a second opinion. I had cancer surgery 20 years ago. I had a brilliant surgeon. He was also a scientist. He did a ton of cancer research. And the first thing he said after he gave me that grim diagnosis, thank God, um, because of his brilliance, I'm alive, which is good. I haven't aggravated my quota yet. But the first thing that that doctor said to me, he said, Mr. Cutler, I don't want you to tell me whether or not you want me to do your surgery until you go to at least one other doctor i want you to get a second and even a third opinion so that you are satisfied that you're making the right decision for yourself now this guy was at the top of his game at the time 
he was the chairman of his department in a major New York hospital. First thing he said is, get at least one second opinion before you tell me whether or not you want me to care for you. Wow. He was telling me I had to question his findings, wasn't he? Because that's how we do things. When scientists, when physicists write papers, research papers, they are peer-reviewed. What is a peer-review? A peer-review means that a scientist who has equal expertise tries to replicate the results of the experiment in his or her lab to see if maybe this was a fluke and it really didn't happen. Remember cold fusion many years ago? Nobody could replicate it, and everyone said, nope, that wasn't what it was. There was something else going on, but cold fusion doesn't work. Why? Because it could not withstand peer review. But when the administration tells you what the science is, you better follow what they told you and don't even have a second thought. Don't forget about a second opinion. They don't want you to have a second thought. This was the kind of crap that went on in Nazi Germany, and I wrote about the science Nazis, about Albert Einstein being run out of Germany because he was alleged by the Nazi regime to be practicing, quote, Jewish science. And to back up their BS, they got two physicists who were Nazis, and who had been granted the Nobel Prize for Physics, and they said that the theory of relativity was Jewish science and was a lie, and that it was dangerous, and that Einstein was basically the enemy of the state because he was a Jew and his science was wrong. Really. Well, if you know anything about physics, and I was going to be an engineer, a couple of my kids are engineers, I've always been a science guy, just about every element of Einstein's theories of relativity have now been confirmed by modern-day technology. He was right on the money. His laboratory involved the blackboard, chalk, and the gray matter between his ears. Think of the enormity of his discoveries, <clears throat> all with a piece of chalk and a brilliant mind. And we've confirmed his theories, down to even discovering gravity waves that were created when black holes collided billions of uh, light years away, gravity waves. At the time, people couldn't even comprehend this. He figured it out. Space-time, his theories on relativity. But why am I telling you this? Because what he was subjected to is what we as Americans are being subjected to. Joe Biden talks about freedom. The Ukrainians are fighting for freedom. And what freedom is this? administration willing to give us when parents who challenge critical race theory are branded terrorists and are likely to receive a visit from the FBI. Is that freedom? I don't think so. Is it freedom when you're told you better follow the science or else? That's not freedom. <clears throat> Questions are the way that we learn. Questions are how society uh, conducts business. When you meet somebody, you say, hi, my name is Mike. What's your name? How are you today? These are all questions. No, we don't want questions. Just be a good little stooge and sit there and do as you're told and bob your head up and down every time we tell you to bob your head up and down. Don't you dare ask questions. Now, it's interesting because Voltaire, the brilliant French philosopher, said that you judge a person's intelligence by the questions they ask. But don't you dare think of asking questions in this country of ours because you have to follow the science as we give it to you. Never mind 
that a person who gets a grim diagnosis is all but ordered to get a second opinion and question the findings of the first doctor. That's what you're doing. Don't follow his science. See if he got it right, told to do. Your medical insurance company will pay for that second opinion, questioning what you were told by the first doctor, who, in a manner of speaking, is a scientist. What happened to follow the science? It's a theater of the absurd. And this comes back to something my dad taught me. He said, you know, Mike, people will treat you the way that you instruct them to treat you, and it comes back to what you're willing to accept. You're told what words you could use. If you use the wrong word, you're going to be accused of hate speech. Can't use the word alien. That's hate speech. Legally, the term alien simply means any person, not a citizen or national of the United States. So what's wrong with that term? doesn't say you're ugly. doesn't say you smell bad. doesn't say you're stupid. doesn't say you're a crook. It simply says you are not a citizen. The problem with the word alien, and there's a very serious problem here, and I'll explain it to you, is that the term alien provides crystal clarity to the issue. And con artists hide in the shadows. Con artists obfuscate the issue by a cloud of language and schemes and scams. That's why they don't want you challenging them. Don't you dare ask me any questions, because if I don't have an answer to your question, you may do some research on your own and find out that I'm a smoking liar. How do they avoid that? They come after you by intimidation and tell you, follow the science or else. How free does that sound when Joe Biden talks about our freedom as Americans? I don't like hate speech, but hate speech to me is the use of the N-word or other words like it or accusing uh, one group of people, uh, white people or whatever, of having privilege. That's hate speech. That's basically saying that these people are benefiting from something that you will never have because, you know, whatever. That's really hate speech when you come down to it, isn't it? I'm a believer that we're all human beings. I'm a believer in that statement that all men are created equal and women. I'm a believer that everyone should be protected by a justice system that wears a blindfold. That's why Lady Justice wears a blindfold, so that there's no presumptions of guilt or, or innocence. Actually, there's a presumption of innocence under our system, but the point that I make is no one should look at another person and say, oh, he is of this religion or that race, so he know he's probably guilty, or we know he's not guilty. Those are irrelevant factors. You cannot and should not hold anyone accountable for issues that are beyond their control. We can't control our skin color. We can't control our religion. We're born into families, and very often we take our family's religion, our parents' religion. That's what happens for me. So to hold people accountable for those things that are beyond their control is outrageous, and it's un-American, and it's certainly not a demonstration of freedom. Not a demonstration of freedom. But we tend to be naive in this country. We really do. I don't know if you folks know this, but apparently there's an American astronaut on board the space station, and the Russians have told us that they're not going to bring him home that he could spend the rest of his life circling the Earth because the seat on the Soyuz that was supposed to bring him home at the end of the month is not his any longer. Whether they follow through, I don't know. Um, NASA said that if they, they really follow through on this, that they will then have SpaceX send a, a, a rocket up to get him. 
But this basically could be the end of the space station. could be certainly the end of our cooperation with Russia as long as Putin runs that government. I've had the privilege of meeting some of America's astronauts, Jim Lovell, Dave Scott, Jim McDivitt. I met a, a, a gentleman who just came back from the space station recently. And they all talk about how when you look at the Earth from the vantage point of orbit, or in the case of Jim Lovell or Dave Scott or Jim McDivitt, because they all went to the moon, they say that, you don't see any borders on the earth. We're told that borders are man-made, they're artificial. I heard that during a debate with, with an actress one day in California. I was out there with MSNBC, back when MSNBC actually did news stories. They've changed so much, as has CNN and other networks. But this actress said to me, you know, borders are artificial. And I said, if you own a house, you have property lines. And when you go to buy a house, the first thing they do is send out a surveyor to make certain that the property lines are accurately drawn and that nothing on your property encroaches on your neighbor's property and vice versa. Do you think that those property lines are artificial and we can't ignore them also? Of course, the young lady had no response to that. She looked kind of confused. I wonder why. From space, maybe you don't see borders. And flying over a country, you may not see borders. Although I remember flying along the Rio Grande in an airplane when I went to Border Patrol Academy. And when you got south of the Rio Grande, it was pitch black. And when you were north of the Rio Grande, all the street lights were on. So you had an inkling that the third world was on the other side of the Rio Grande, as indeed it is, which is part of the problem. Because the border between the United States and Mexico is the longest border. It's more than 2,000 miles separating the first world from the third world, and that puts a lot of pressure on that border, economic and so forth. But the reason I'm telling you the story is that from space, maybe you don't see borders, and maybe they're not drawn uh, by, you know, on the earth where it's visible, but make no mistake, as we're seeing in the Ukraine, borders are generally drawn not with chalk or crayon or pencil, but blood. So you could say what you want about whether or not borders really exist or if borders matter. Believe me, they do matter. The most dangerous word that Donald Trump ever uttered that scared the hell out of the globalists was the S-word. Sovereignty. Sovereignty. You can't see a virus, but it can kill you. Just because you can't see borders from space don't mean they don't exist and don't mean that they have significant consequences. Carl Sagan, I met him at the airport, actually was behind so many of the space probes. He was an astrophysicist. He was behind the Voyager space space program and others. And it's amazing what we accomplished. In the 70s, we sent Voyager out to go past the entire solar system. It now takes over 35 hours for a signal from the Earth to hit the Voyager and Voyager to respond. The round trip traveling at the speed of light takes 35-plus hours. It only takes eight minutes for a light from the sun to reach us, to put that in perspective. Eight minutes traveling at the speed of the light to go from the earth to the sun, but it takes about 18 hours for a signal from the earth to reach Voyager or vice versa. Amazing achievement. And Carl Sagan wrote something about the pale blue dot, the earth as seen from the orbit of Saturn by Voyager. So I thought I'd read this to you, but make you understand just how fragile we all are, but how important it is that we protect ourselves. That's really what's important to think about. 
So this is Carl Sagan's statement. Look again at that dot. That's home. That's here. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being, whoever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of consonant religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, Funny how that always seems to go together, doesn't it? Every corrupt politician, every superstar, in quotes, every supreme leader, in quotes, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatred. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that, in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there's no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes. Settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There's perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. If only world leaders and tyrants like the Putins and all the others like them would understand that. That's me adding that last sentence. He ended it by saying this is the only home we've ever known. I want to make sure we didn't misunderstand the quote. So when I look at the killing and the tragedy, it makes you want to cry. As humans, we should do better than that. And we should demand of our leaders true representation to look out for what's in our best interests to preserve our lives and our futures. We're living in a tough time. I'm sure we're going to get through it, okay? But we the people have got to follow my dad's advice that we will teach our leaders how they should treat us by demonstrating what we are willing to accept. Please check out my articles at Front Page Magazine and usinc.org. I so appreciate your spending this hour with me. Please get involved, folks. Have conversations with your neighbors, not fights, not arguments, conversations. Let's celebrate the First Amendment uh, this weekend and every weekend. Be well, stay safe. Remember, democracy is not a spectator sport. See you next week, right here, at the same time, on the Michael Cutler Hour. So long, everybody.